Burning Zozo Written by Kristen Knight Narrated by Nancy Peterson 4.13 Execution Rand stumbled along the creek bed, his sunburned eyes searching for water. A shadow next to a blue-gray boulder yards away looked promising, so he staggered forward, no longer feeling the enormous blisters on his feet. His feet had numbed out hours ago. He wiped away the sweat pouring down the sides of his shaved head with his sleeve. Then he shed his jacket and ripped out the lining. Wrapping the paisley fabric around his head, he fashioned a keffiyeh like he learned in the prison yard and kept moving. Nausea cramped his gut. Great, just what I need. Heat stroke. I gotta find water. Then he wobbled forward, fell on all fours, and vomited. Rolling over, Ran scooted his torso and head under a nearby scrub oak to drink in the few inches of shade it offered. The smell of his blood and sweat-soaked shirt was so strong he could taste it coppery, like a penny on his tongue. He'd been running for over 24 hours, with nothing more than a Gatorade and a Slim Jim for fuel. That's all he could afford with what little cash he'd had in his wallet when he ran from the mansion. And using his credit cards wasn't an option. Too traceable. Six months ago, a guy in a bar had told him about a place called Nambe Falls, north of Santa Fe. He knew he could get water there. But having grown up on the streets of Detroit, he was no Boy Scout and had no idea if he was still headed in the right direction. He stayed away from the roads to keep from being spotted, but that made it difficult to keep his bearings. Rand closed his eyes in the shade. Sleep, he muttered. I'll just sleep for a few minutes. He drifted and dozed. Then, somewhere between waking and sleep, a low rhythm hammered in the distance, deep, steady, chopping. He opened his eyes. The helicopter. No. He jumped up, turned to run, and froze. In the creek bed before him crouched an enormous black panther. A steady growl beat in his throat, low and rhythmic. The cat inched forward, thick muscles rolling under his glossy fur. Rand stepped back. He'd never heard of a panther wandering so far west and wondered if he was hallucinating. He rubbed his sunburned eyes. The cat watched Rand, his eyes piercing his skin and stripping it back with their yellow marble gaze. Slowly, carefully, Rand unbuttoned his bloody shirt, stripped it off, and tossed it to the cat. There, there you go, take it, he said, his voice shaking. He backed up further. The cat ignored the shirt and crouched deeper. No, no, 
Nice cat, Rand said, holding up a hand. Nice kitty. Then he turned and ran. The cat leapt. Claws pierced the back of Rand's shoulders, pulling him to the dusty creek bed. His head smacked the ground, and he cried out. The predator's lips pulled back, and six-inch fangs dug into a tender artery pulsing in the prey's neck. The man wriggled, so the cat pushed his claws deep into his back to hold him in place. Blood and air gurgled from the man's mouth, and his legs kicked. Too hungry for a fight, the panther jerked the neck as hard as he could just once. It snapped, and the prey went limp. Four point fourteen. Restitution. Andy packed up the red designer suit, shoes, crystal purse, and gold Egyptian necklace and gown, and rode her bike to Julia's Couture Consignment and Pawn on Water Street. When she caught a reflection in the window, she groaned, took off her glasses, and twisted her hair into a bun. Less homeless, at least, she said. The woman at the counter had silky red hair that hung to the middle of her back, and her pale powdered skin glowed like an opal. Can I help you? she asked. Uh, yes, Andy said, feeling foolish for having brought her items in a Walmart bag. Do you buy designer clothing for cash? Depends on the designer, she said, and flipped a wall of hair over her shoulder. We don't take department store design. She stopped as Andy pulled the red-soled shoes from the sack. How about Louboutin? Andy turned the shoes so they were facing the clerk. The woman stroked the shoes. Uh, could you hold on a moment? I just need to check something. Sure, Andy said feigning interest in a jeweled cheetah bracelet on a nearby table. The clerk took one of the shoes with her to the back room where she picked up a phone. Andy chewed her thumbnail, listening to see if the woman was calling the police. The Scoggin instinct in her told her to run, get out while you can. But memories of Emma's sweaty forehead and swollen eyes rolled in her mind. So she stayed put. The woman gave Andy a few thousand for the goods. Andy zipped the cashier's check in her wallet, careful not to catch the precious paper in the teeth. Next, she went to the Golden Eye Jewelry Store on Don Gaspar Avenue. Can I help you? A man with a short beard and dimples asked. I hope so. Do you buy jewelry? Depends on the piece, he said, popping a blue jeweler's loop over one eye and opening his hand. Andy slid the cartouche onto his calloused palm. He turned the piece over and peered at the tiny jeweler's mark, then flipped it again and popped out the loop. He was about to speak, but stopped and held the piece closer. 
Uh, where did you get this? It was a gift from a friend. What kind of friend? She looked at him sideways. That's kind of none of your... Um, why do you ask? Well, the gold is exquisite. Eighteen carat. But your friend must have an odd sense of humor. She scratched her forehead. Why do you say that? Do you know what this says? He held the pendant from the chain like it might burn his hand. My name, Andy, in hieroglyphics. Um, that's not what this says. He pushed it toward Andy. This says, child of set. She took it from him. Child of what? Set. The Egyptian god of darkness. The god of... Andy stood looking at the man, her brows bunched up. His eyes grew wide and worried. Oh, uh, it must just be a mistake. A mix-up. I bet the merchant your friend bought it from switched it so he could offload the pendant. Happens all the time with these cartouches. There are so few people who read hieroglyphics, you know, especially in the States. Oh, Andy looked at the case below her, then at the cash register. Well, would you be willing to buy it? I really need the money. I'd be happy to buy it for the gold weight, but I'd want to melt it down. I wouldn't feel right selling it like this. Okay. How much for the gold? Let me weigh it and I'll tell you exactly. Minutes later, the bearded man slid a stack of bills across the counter and said, Don't worry, I'm sure your friend meant well. Thank you. I'm sure he did. She tucked the money in her pocket. Andy cycled home just as her mother was pulling out of the carport. When she placed the money in her mother's hand, Liz lifted her head and looked her daughter square in the eyes for the first time in days. Are you going to the doctor? Andy asked, seeing Emma in the car seat. Can I come? Liz nodded. Andy hopped in the back. When the clinic nurse saw Emma's rash, she sent her immediately to the hospital. The ER doc had Emma rushed upstairs, then introduced a woman from the Center for Disease Control to Liz and Andy. She took their blood and made them put on masks and gloves. Once the stack of paperwork they gave Liz was done, they took her to Emma. One nurse was holding Emma down while another put in an IV. She screamed, No! Mama! Mama! Liz rushed to her and rubbed her belly. Shh, baby girl, Mommy's here. Home! Emma pulled against the restraints. Willer! You're all right, Emma. You'll see Willer soon. Liz's voice was unusually calm. After the IV was in, they let her hold Emma as they pumped meds into her. Liz rocked her and sang 80s ballads from her favorite 80s bands. Duran Duran, 
Howard Jones and the Bengals. Dream and let your dreams go, she muttered. It's your turn to fly. Long as I'm standing by, you can close your eyes. Andy went to find Liz some coffee and walked through the infectious disease ward. It was like she was back in You May Dono, but with each open door revealing a different version of the same sad dream. Masked people with pained eyes hovering over miserable loved ones, most of them children. After the sixth door, she stopped looking in. In the cafeteria, she stood in a long line of sullen, sleepy-eyed visitors waiting to pay for food. A woman next to her was talking loudly on her phone, sharing everything she said with the entire waiting line. No, they think it might travel through airborne fluids, which makes it so contagious and difficult to track. A sneeze could pass it on. They're working on an antidote now, but apparently it takes time to see if the disease will respond. But it's a long process. They infect mice and wait for them to die. Or not. Andy added two sugars to her mother's coffee from a nearby condiment cart. His fever's down, finally. The woman's voice broke. I thought it never would. She started crying. He's just so scared and miserable. It kills me to see him like this, but there's nothing I can do. I feel totally helpless. Andy paid for the coffee, then headed to the elevator. As she stepped out of the way of a gurney, she heard a familiar voice. She followed it. Behind a barely cracked door, Mr. Chen sat on an exam table, wearing black socks and a pale blue hospital gown. Have you seen a change in any other symptoms? The doctor asked. Numbness? Slurred speech? Vision problems? Chen's voice was low. The numbness in my hand is getting worse. How much worse? It's interfering with my work, he said. I'm dropping things. Okay, she said. I'm going to adjust your meds and then run another panel. The doctor's voice softened. I'm sorry, Jonathan. I wish I could do more. I know. So do I. We may be at the point where it's only going to get worse, not better. Okay. Thank you, doctor. Chen's usually strong voice sounded small, almost like a child's. I'll let you get dressed, then I want to see you again next week. The doctor walked towards the door, her high heels clicking on the tile floor. Andy hurried down the hallway, her mind rolling through questions. If the numbness in Chen's hand wasn't from an injury, what was it? And why did he lie about it? She pressed the elevator button. Emma was sleeping soundly, 
even with all the tubes coming out of her and the constant monitor beeping. Liz stood in the corner with a doctor. Here, Andy handed Liz the coffee. The doctor said, her heart is weaker than it should be. How long did you say she's had the fever? A few days, Liz answered. A few, meaning more than two? Yes. How many exactly? It came and went, so off and on. Maybe six, she swallowed. Or eight this time. She had it a few weeks ago, too, but it lifted. The doctor paused, looked at her over his glasses, and clicked his pen. Mrs. Scoggin, I'd like to run some additional tests. We need to make sure the fever hasn't damaged her heart permanently. I'll have the nurse bring you the paperwork. The doctor tucked the clipboard into the bin at the foot of Emma's bed and left. Liz stood still, holding out her coffee cup like a beggar. Mom, what'd he say? Um, she swallowed and turned. He said we should have brought her to the hospital sooner. They think it might be that new strain of rheumatic fever. And if it is, she's in the third stage of the disease. Third out of... Three. Liz's voice cracked. Andy sank into a nearby chair. What are they going to do? How do they cure it? The doctor said there is no cure. Treatments for strep and rheumatic fever aren't touching this strain. It's mutated. They're calling it the Fiero strain because the fever and joint pain is so bad. Fourteen people have died from it already. Andy rubbed her face. Have any survived? Liz looked at Andy, wide-eyed, and didn't answer. I'm, um, I'm going to stay with her. Can you find a way home? Make lunch for the kids? I'll try to make it home for dinner, but if I don't, will you handle it? You and Jenna? Yes, Andy said, as all the feelings seeped from her legs and hands. And bring me some medicine in my orange cup if you can, okay? Are you serious? Suddenly, Liz grabbed Andy's hand, pulled her close, and hugged her, splashing the coffee on the floor. Andy could feel her mother's choppy breath against her chest. Liz whispered, What if this is my fault? She squeezed tighter. What if I did this to her? I'm afraid, Andy. I'm so afraid. 4.15 Green Jenna and Andy made sandwiches with canned chicken and just mustard for lunch. They knew they would be dry, but since the fridge was dead, they didn't trust the mayo. They called Luke and Steph to the table. After the food was served, no one ate. They just sat looking at Emma's empty high chair. It's too quiet, Luke said. I hate it. 
with no muddy behind-door TV, no swamp cooler hum, no ping of condensers in the fridge, and no Emma trying out new words like ketchup and motato. The thickening quiet pressed down on them like a solid stone mass. We've got to eat, Jenna said. We can't have anyone else getting sick, right? Everyone nodded their agreement. Then they timidly took one bite of their lunch and sat in the heavy silence, choking on thoughts of what if. After the paper plates were jammed in the trash can and the table wiped down, Steph went to read in her room, Jenna went back to the salon, and Luke headed to the skate park. Andy retreated to the lean-to that housed the garbage cans to read up on a fragrance company Adams was looking to buy. Each Scoggin had found their own time and place to worry about Emma. But after a few hours, they all came back together, like some unseen spooling thread was pulling them home. Between 5 and 5.15 p.m., Luke rode his Nightmare Before Christmas longboard into the horseshoe. At 5.20, Jenna's beetle rolled up. Liz's asthmatic Honda pulled in at 5.44. And at 6 p.m. sharp, a heavy set of booted footsteps jogged up the crooked front steps and through the door. The screen door slammed. The sound they all heard a million times a day. But this time... It was followed by a new sound, Liz screaming. Andy held still, white-knuckling the arms of the lawn chair, waiting to hear words. Steph closed her book, Jenna turned her painting music down, and Luke pulled off his headphones. Liz screamed again, and Andy's mouth dried out. She dropped her papers and rushed through the door. Standing in the kitchen were Shane and Liz, holding each other like they'd never let go. Shane was kissing the side of Liz's face and smiling. Dad! Come here, Sonny. He opened his arms for Andy to join the huddle. Jenna appeared, then Steph and Luke. The entire family stood in the kitchen, hugging and laughing and kissing and crying, after several happy, smashed-together minutes, they moved to the table. What happened? Jenna asked. How did you get free? I'm still not exactly sure. I had a meeting scheduled with my lawyer to talk about the case. But when the guard arrived, instead of cuffing me and taking me to the meeting room, he just opened my cell and told me to follow. My lawyer was standing in the hallway, grinning like a little girl. What'd he say? Luke asked. He said he'd gotten a call from the court clerk that morning, letting him know that the charges had been dropped, and I was free to go. How is that possible? Liz said, worry in her voice. When the prosecutor went to get the security tapes from the evidence room, they were gone. And the guys, my friends told the prosecutor I wasn't even there that night, said they'd been confused, too drunk. They had to drop the charges for lack of evidence. 
That's pretty unbelievable, Liz said, folding her arms. And you didn't correct them? Andy asked. Shane shook his head. And that's not the most amazing part. He pulled out a card and laid it on the table. The edges were trimmed with bright Kelly green. My lawyer said the United States government has approved my application for a green card, and I will be free to work in New Mexico, or any state, for as long as I need. The paperwork was messengered to his office that morning. But you never applied for a green card, Liz said, flipping it over, her brow furrowed. And this has your real name on it. At first, I thought he was pulling my chain. But then he opened his briefcase and handed me the completed green card paperwork, an updated passport, and an airline ticket home. All on the up and up. He said something about how if you have a sick kid in the U.S., you can get a green faster. Airport security and customs didn't even flinch when I came through on my way home. Who in the hell did this? Spooky asked holding the card up to the light. Hey! Liz yanked on the sleeve of his Doctor of Doom t-shirt and said, No! My lawyer said the woman on the phone wouldn't tell him who she was or who she represented, but that I had an important job to do in the United States and wanted to make sure I was able to do it. What job? Steph asked, swinging a pink Jillian Morris purse. They didn't say, Steffi. Was it Rodriguez? Jenna asked. Shane shrugged. Don't know why he would. Steph crawled up on Shane's lap, held her magnifying glass to his ear, and said, I'll find out who it was. He squeezed Steph, kissed her forehead, and said, You do that, Steph. Then he looked at Liz. Could it have been your parents? After not speaking to us for ten years, she said. I doubt it. Besides, how would they get a green card? My parents are only connected with the local country club crowd, not Washington. She met Andy's eyes with a worried, knowing gaze. Well, whoever it was, I owe them. Big time. He tickled Steph and smiled as she laughed. Then he looked around. Hey, where's Emma? Andy didn't hear the rest of the conversation. She was up, out the door, and on her bike. 